listening to the Save the Marriage podcast. Your marriage can be saved and strengthened if you have the right information. Join Dr. Lee Bauckham as he explores ways for you to improve your relationship and your life, starting right now. It was right at the beginning of a coaching session, and my client was telling me how she was feeling at that point. She said, you know, I feel like I'm about to be pulled underwater. I feel like this is pulling me down, and I don't know how to get up. And when she said that, I thought about that image, about how many times when we're in the middle of a crisis, it feels like we're being pulled underwater. And if we're in the middle of a crisis with somebody else, it can feel like they're pulling us down. So today, I want to talk a little bit about what happens in that process and how you can keep from being pulled down when your spouse is in the crisis. Now, what does it mean to be pulled down? Well, if you think about somebody else is spiraling in this crisis and you're trying to figure out how to get in there and they're struggling, they're striving, you can get sucked into the process. So let's first understand that sometimes in the middle of a marriage crisis, the crisis starts because one person hits a crisis point. Oftentimes at the very beginning of that process, it's, it's not that first that both people are feeling the crisis or second that the marriage is in crisis, but that somebody in that marriage is feeling it. Somebody is saying, you know, I'm, I'm not happy with this right now. I'm not happy with what's going on. Sometimes that unhappiness isn't just about the marriage. In fact, rarely is it just about the marriage. Now, sometimes people think it's just about the marriage, but it's rarely that easy to isolate. It's usually bigger than that. So what this reminded me of is some training I had in my past, not in marriage therapy, not in relationship work, but in rescue work. I remember when I was a teenager, I did a, a summer uh, training as a lifeguard. I never served as a lifeguard, but they allowed us you know, to take swim lessons as part of our membership at a pool. And after I'd taken all the swimming lessons I could take every summer, the last one was lifeguarding. So I took my junior lifeguarding certification and figured, you know, maybe someday I would do that. And so what we had to do is get there early in the morning and practice rescuing ourselves so that if we were in trouble, we knew what to do, and then rescuing other people so that we could actually do some lifeguard work. So we did some really strange exercises like jumping in the pool fully clothed and having to take off those clothes. And in fact, I remember at one of those where we had to take our jean pants, you know, and, and jeans that are wet are super heavy, but we would tie them up and then inflate them and use them kind of as a, a life preserver, holding it over our, our hits. So that was an interesting lesson just to figure out how to be resourceful enough to not drown myself in the middle of a crisis. But what was more interesting was what we had to do when somebody else was drowning. So we'd have someone get in the pool and they would act like the drowning person, desperately trying to not go under. Now, now we know more research shows that people kind of slip under sometimes. But when you get to them, the reaction is often the same. They are in panic mode. And when they feel another human, they try to climb to the sky. So many times we would have to approach from underneath them to try to bring them to the surface. But if you notice when you're bringing someone to the surface, you're lower in the water than they are. So suddenly where they were in crisis, they can suddenly put you in crisis. So I remember that years and years ago from my uh, young days, teenage days. But it's even more poignantly remembered by me more recently. 
maybe about 10 years ago, I was doing certification for my uh, scuba instructor certification. And, and as a step of that, I had to become what they called the, the rescue diver. The rescue diver was one that was trained in rescue procedures when there is a diving accident. So we had to do things like dive underwater, find somebody, bring them safely to the surface. We had to do things like if somebody was panicked on, on the surface, what to do with them. And it reminded me of that same thing. So you would start to approach them. And this time, I wasn't dealing with teenagers. I was dealing with grown men, grown men with lots of equipment on them, that as soon as I would get to them, they would start clawing on me and pulling off my mask and pulling off uh, different pieces of my equipment. And so in the process, our task was to not become part of the accident. And that's Part of what's important about this, when you got too close, and this is a very important part that now transfers directly over to what we're talking about in a relationship crisis. If you got too close, they would grab hold of you because they were doing anything they could to not go under themselves, even if it meant drowning the other person, even if it meant destroying the person who was coming to try to take them down or or help them out by taking them down and pushing them underwater. When people are desperate and feeling like they are in a desperate situation, they will claw and push no matter if it's the loved one beside them. Their best friend or their spouse could be beside them, and they will try to climb above to get out of the water and get a breath. That's our desperation to preserve ourselves. Suddenly, a very primitive part of our brain kicks in. No longer are we dealing with it in a realistic way. We're grabbing for whatever we can to help. So the first thing that we would do as we were practicing this, as we would approach the person who was struggling, was to keep a safe distance. The safe distance means we were close enough to communicate with them, but not so close that they could drag us down. Then we would use some tool to reach for them, a towel or some other method of doing that. And in the process, our task was to make sure that we manage that distance to the point that we could actually facilitate the rescue. Now, let's take a couple of points from that. First of all is the idea of the safe distance. Sometimes when you get too close to somebody who's flailing their way through a crisis in life, if you get too close, you get clobbered too. It's not that they mean to do that. It's just that they're so desperate to get away from the pain, the fear, the scare of what's going on them, the terror of that instance, and they're trying to find a way through So they start latching on to whatever gets close to them. So the first rule was always to maintain a safe distance. Now, let's be clear. If you're trying to rescue somebody, maintaining a safe distance as they go under is not useful. So we had to find ways of improvising. Here's the way that my class went. So back to the scuba lessons. We'd practice for most of the weekend in pool settings. We'd practice how we would uh, tow somebody underwater, how we would tow somebody across the surface, how we would uh, do mouth-to-mouth resuscitation while we were floating them along. All of that came to an end on Sunday. Sunday morning in early May or early March in North Indiana was where I was doing the class. We were in a reservoir, a reservoir that was only a couple of weeks thawed out. So it was a pretty chilly uh, day. I had a very thick wetsuit on. 
So we, as the rescue divers, were in a small little shack that was adjacent to the reservoir, and we had to wait in the shack, there were two of us, for the accident to occur in the water. At the point the accident occurred, we would hear somebody yell, we would exit the shack, assess the situation, and figure out how we were going to deal with it. We knew there was going to be one time when somebody was on the bottom, and we knew that there was going to be a time when somebody was on the top. The moment when there was something on the top, I remember uh, my partner and I decided who would go in the water, that was me, and who would stand on the shore and supervise, that was my partner. So as I ran to the water, the first thing I grabbed was a stick. It was about uh, four feet long. And I swam out with that stick so that I could offer the stick to the person and pull them towards me. The problem was when I was offering the stick at that safe distance, the person was so desperate or acting so desperate that they just flailed and hit the stick. So my first a uh, way of helping wasn't enough. At that point, I had to go underwater, come up behind them, and grab them and start towing them to shore. As soon as I grabbed, they twisted, pulled, and put me underwater. I had my air in my mouth, so I was breathing, but then they got a, a death grip on my shoulders and started yanking my equipment off. At that point, I had to disengage in order to preserve myself and come back to the surface At that point, I tried again. Now, the end result of this training was that there are times when you actually have to let the person wear themselves out to the point that you could then approach them. Sometimes that's the process that happens in working on your marriage. You can't immediately get close to the person who is all upset and frustrated and lashing out. You have to stay at a safe distance and wait until the storm has passed in order to begin moving towards them. But notice that what I didn't do is I didn't go to shore. The whole time that they were flailing, I was staying nearby, just out of range, treading water, preserving my energy, and waiting for the opportunity. So after I had several failed attempts to get close to them, I had to wait until they just ran out of gas and before they slipped under to grab them and pull them towards me. Now, you don't want to wait until the person is right, ready to give up on the relationship before you rush in, but you do want to make sure that a lot of the storm has passed. When a lot of their energy has been dispersed, it's a lot easier to move closer. Now, one of the things I was doing the whole time I was nearby was talking to the person, reassuring the person that we would get through this, reassuring the person that I was there to help, reassuring the person that there was somebody who was trying to help and trying to calm them down. Now, the person who was playing the role was refusing to calm down, but many times in the middle of a crisis, just knowing that that person is still there, that you, the spouse, are still there, that you're there continuing to reach out is enough to begin to move the process in a better way. There's a danger about being too far away. So these are two mistakes I watch people make now in the middle of a marriage crisis. (laughs) We've just used the drowning as a metaphor, but let's go with the real marriage crisis because there are two mistakes that match those same mistakes. One is being too close and the other is being too far. The mistake of being too close is when somebody tries to rush in and convince the other person that the marriage is worth saving, that their love is there, that of course we've always loved each other, and try to remind them of all the events. 
the too close is when you're working very hard to convince somebody to stay in love with you, to convince somebody to try to stay with you. Part of my rule is that convincing will backfire on you, mainly because I've been watching that for 30 years. When you try to convince somebody who is convinced just as heavily that the marriage has no possibility of moving forward, their process is to defend and prove that there's no way the relationship can continue. So as hard as you're trying to convince them that the marriage should stay, they're trying to convince you of why it can't. And in the process, they're re-convincing themselves of the same thing. So when we get too close, we try to pull somebody in. Sometimes it's because our fear of abandonment has been uh, kicked in and we're trying to do every, everything we can to maintain our own place of calm. So we rush in and get too close. But the other danger is being too far away. So sometimes people also go to the other extreme where they begin to distance and say, okay, if you don't want to be in the relationship, then I don't want anything to do with you and you need to get out of the house or I'm getting out of the house. And they begin to create more and more distance. They cut off all physical communication, all verbal communication, all emotional sharing, all sharing. And they start trying to either teach a lesson or hope that the person will kind of follow what the no contact rule with people would say, and they'll come back to you. It just doesn't work. When you're that far away, the person says, I might as well give up on this. And they metaphorically go under, they let the relationship go. So these are two dangerous spots in that relationship to be too far away or too close. Either of those create problems in restoring the relationship. It's kind of like the old story of Goldilocks, right? The porridge was too hot. The porridge was too cold. The porridge was just right. The distance was too far. The distance was too close. Then there's the just right distance. So what's the just right distance? Well, it's a place that you're somewhat uncomfortable, but where your spouse isn't feeling the discomfort of two being too close, and yet you're still there to share. It's a very hard thing to describe. So I give you tools to do that when I use my system. When you, you use my system, you'll see that there are tools that you use to kind of understand that, that distance. In fact, in my VIP program, I have extensive training on how to understand that emotional distance and the emotional space that's necessary and the dangers of too much of that. So too far, too close. There are some rules. There are four rules that I want you to think about in terms of this whole process and applying that uh, feeling of, of rescue into it. The first rule of any rescue, of any first aid, of any rescue of any type is self-preservation. Self-preservation. You've got to be around. You've got to survive in order to do anything. You can't let this take you down. Whenever you get on a plane, first thing that happens is one of the flight attendants does a good little lecture on safety. And one of those safety points is in the event that airflow or oxygen is lost in the cockpit or in the whole uh, plane, that you will have um, some masks drop down and those masks will deliver you oxygen. And so everybody in the cabin will have access to that flow of oxygen. 
So what do you do first? Let's say you're sitting beside somebody who can't get their mask on. What do you do? You put your mask on first. Because if they can't get theirs on and you pass out because you didn't put yours on, they get no help. Self-preservation is primary in this. Sometimes people have to move far enough away to preserve themselves in the middle of a crisis. If we give all of ourselves up in a crisis, we cause a problem. We lose our self-identity. Then at that point, we have another crisis. So self-preservation is rule number one. I remember when I was studying first aid and they said, you know, the first thing you have to do is look at the scene and decide if you can even help. And I was sitting there thinking how horrible that would be to be at the scene and know you couldn't help because it would put you at risk. The number one rule when there is a diving accident is to take care of yourself. The number two rule is to take care of your partner. What we've tried to eliminate in scuba diving is two fatalities where there might have only been one fatality. And the two fatalities happen when somebody continues a process that is no longer going to work, but they keep going at their own risk. So the number one rule is always self-preservation and first aid and rescues in everywhere in life. You survive and then you work to help the other person, the relationship to survive. You're important enough that you have to make sure that your preservation is primary. Rule number two, stay calm. In the middle of a crisis, the last thing that needs to happen is for both the rescuer and the rescuee to go into panic mode. So of that process, we already know that 50% of those two are going to be in panic mode. The person who is in danger, the victim, is going to be in panic mode. It's the rescuer's job to stay calm. It's the rescuer's job to take a deep breath and do the best they can, knowing that their task is self-preservation first, calm second. So in the marriage crisis, you do the same thing. When there is a crisis going on in your relationship, you've got to stay calm in the process to find your place of calm. If you know that you will be okay, see rule number one, then you can stay calm as the process goes on. So rule number two is stay calm. Rule number three is be ready to release. This was true when I was doing lifeguard training. It was true whenever I was doing uh, climbing training. It was true when I was doing scuba training. Sometimes you have to let go either to reposition and get ready for another angle of attack or because you have to go back to rule number one of self-preservation. That day on the reservoir, my stick reach didn't work, nor did my safety grab work. I had to finally push them away from me to get a, a place where I could get myself calm again, reassess and decide how to attack the situation again. Sometimes we have to let go a little bit. One of the things that often happens in the middle of a marriage crisis is we kind of latch on to the other person and we won't let go out of fear that there'll never be another chance to grab hold again. And because of that, we put ourselves at risk. We put ourselves in panic mode. And we put ourselves at that too close point when we no longer have any sense of control or any sense of, of strategy or anything else. 
So sometimes in the middle of an attempt to rescue, you have to let go. I remember at one point when I was doing some climber training, one of the lessons was when I'm holding on and I'm continuing to slide towards the edge, I might have to let go of the person on the other end of the rope in order to, rule number one, self-preserve. This is one of those places where we recognize that half of a crisis is better than twice the crisis. Rule number one, self-preservation, continues to be our hallmark rule. If you're not surviving, nothing else matters in the process of trying to save a situation or save another person. So sometimes you have to let go. And sometimes you have to realize that by letting go, you have a better opportunity to move back a little bit and come at it from a different angle. Several times when I was doing that scuba training, I let go of the person I'd come at them kind of too directly, and I had to let go, push them away, come under them, and grab them from the rear in a way that isolated them from grabbing me. And the only way I could get that position by was releasing and coming at it from a different angle. So sometimes we have to release in order to reset so that we can get back in that process. There's one more rule. Get help. In fact, that was the first rule that I needed to follow, whether it was a diving accident or swimming accident or any other accident. While I was in the process of working to save the relationship, or or in that case, save the person, I needed to alert help. And so my first thing when there was a crisis on the water was to turn to my partner and say, call 911, get somebody here and watch for when they get here, guide them to me. And then I went to the water. I got help first because what good is it if I get to them in the water, I can keep them up, but I can't get them to shore and nobody's coming to the rescue. The same thing is true if you come to the scene where somebody's had a heart attack. Before you start CPR, you call 911. You do it first. Why? So they can come. The experts can come and help. The same was true in lifeguarding situations. You alerted somebody else to get help while you went in to make the rescue because it uh, gave less of a space for something to go wrong. It it shortened the length of time between the accident and help arriving because you always needed help. So rule number four is get help. What does that look like in a marriage crisis? Getting help may be about finding a good therapist. You know, I have some concerns about therapy, but I know there are great therapists out there. I talk with them all the time. I'm interviewing several great therapists just to get their opinions on what clients can do, what what people can do in order to improve their relationship. So there are great therapists out there. Get a coach. Find a relationship coach. Find some ways that you can work on it yourself. Find an individual life coach if you need somebody to guide you through to get to a better place. Find a program. I tend to like my program, the Save the Marriage System. So if you're looking for a place to start, I would recommend that. You've got to get help, though, whether it's a book or a seminar or a retreat or a therapist or a coach or some other program, some other method of getting help. You've got to get help. And this doesn't mean calling the in-laws or calling your own family or calling your best friend or calling your spouse's best friend. That's not qualified help. You want to find help 
that knows how to help in that situation. So I mentioned my Save the Marriage system. That's a great place to start. Save the Marriage System is a program that I've been uh, creating and developing over the last 30 years, and it's been available for about the last 20 years in different formats. I keep revising it to make sure you have the latest information and the best information because we continue to learn, I continue to learn, and I continue to improve that. But that program has been tested by couples around the world. We've had people buy my system on every single continent, I think, except for Antarctica. I keep waiting for that one to come in, but from everywhere else. We've had people from every state in the U.S. We've had people from around the world to use that material to save their relationships. So it's a great foundational piece. Now, here's the thing. Right now, I have a program uh, that's in addition to that. It's the VIP Virtual Coaching Program. People who purchase my Save the Marriage system have an opportunity when they're getting the system to also sign up for a free week of VIP. You just have to say yes to the trial, yes to the free week. You sign up for that. That'll give you additional resources at no cost. That whole first week, no cost to you whatsoever in order to access extra training and extra tools and coaching. And I also will have one of my coaches contact you. All you have to do is tell us what's going on. I have a big button on the download page that says click here for, uh, to claim your coaching session. You click that, give us some information. A coach will contact you and walk you through. In that moment, you have suddenly had access to lots of extra help, lots of help. You've got a primary piece where you can study the system, secondary piece where you're part of the VIP program, and the third piece, uh, tertiary piece of one of the coaches contacting you and making sure you're getting started. That's the part. And you're getting ready to do the rescue. Get your help in line. Self-preservation, staying calm, being ready to let go and back up a little bit and getting ready to try again, and then getting help. If you're ready for that, Join me at savethemarriage.com. That's savethemarriage.com. This is Lee Balkum wishing you the best as you work to save your marriage. You've been listening to Save the Marriage Podcast. For more information and help, please visit us at savethemarriage.com.